Hi, my name is Anne Huff, and I'm with Loyola Marymount's Global Policy Institute, and you're listening to the Global Policy Institute podcast. With me today is Dr. Jennifer Ramos and Dr. Nigel Robb. Dr. Ramos is an associate professor and director of Peace and Justice Studies at Loyola Marymount University. Dr. Robb is a professor of Russian history, focuses on Russia, the Soviet Union, civil society, natural disasters, and the theories of historical analysis in his work. Today, Dr. Ramos and Dr. Robb will be discussing their research on Russia and the far right. Their work is titled titled Russia Abroad, Russia at Home, explaining Russia's support for the far right. So my first question is, why did you choose to collaborate on this project? Were there any interdisciplinary challenges in the collaboration? That's a good question, Anne. So one of the things or one of the reasons why we decided to collaborate was because we're looking at a very timely topic, right? We have the rise of the far right. We also have this Russian intervention or interference in the U.S. elections. And um, so we both really brought our expertise, I think, to the paper because uh, Dr. Rob is an expert in Russia and um, I have been doing work on the far right abroad. Um, So I think it was a nice intersection of our interests. And I really didn't find any challenges because international relations is so interdisciplinary, in my view, at least anyway. Um, So I'd be interested to hear what Dr. Rob has to say. Thanks, Professor Ramos, for that. Um, Yeah, I think sort of in terms of the collaboration, I think for me, who's more, you know, I am more focused on Russia rather than international relations. And I know Professor Ramos is does, you know, much, thinks much broader internationally than I do, but we sort of met and we discussed a a class and we were looking at human rights issues. And I think over the course of teaching together, we sort of came to understand that there might be an intersection in, in her interest in, in the far right and my interest in Russia, which isn't necessarily the far right, but sort of through these conversations, it became clear that there was some type of, some type of intersection. And I think it was, it was very interesting for me to all of a sudden, it's like, okay, you know, where is the far right in Russia? And what is their position in Russia? Which are things that I hadn't, especially in a contemporary perspective, hadn't spent so much time on. And so listening to Professor Ramos talk all about the far right, you know, it was like, okay, let's let's look at this and then compare. And the comparison was interesting. In terms of interdisciplinary challenges, I don't think there were any challenges per se, but there were certainly things that were interesting because Professor Ramos, in, in from the poli sci perspective, I think, and can correct me if I'm wrong here, it's more modeling. It's more testing models as you go into something. So if you look at our work together, you will see, and that's from the poli-sci perspective, a much stronger sort of overarching theoretical sort of construct, which we ask, you know, does does the Russian far right fit into this and, and defining far right values and whatnot, which is a little bit different from history. Not all that different, but a little bit different. Could you give a basic overview of the topic and your thesis? Sure. Uh, So we are interested in examining the two different faces that Russia presents at home and abroad. Um, Russia has been one of the drivers of support for the far right around the world, but that set of beliefs is not a good fit for governing Russia. In fact, it would undermine domestic stability. And our argument is that Russia uses the tactic of promoting the far right abroad as part of its destabilization strategy in the West. But at home, Russia promotes respect for multi-ethnic states and diversity. So in essence, we are starting a more nuanced view of Russia. Yeah. And for me, what's interesting there is just this, I mean, I, I'm a historian, so I, you know, I know maybe 1870 better than I know 2021 at times, but 
it was all, I, you know, I follow the news, what's going on in Russia. And I know Russian interference in American elections and whatnot, but I never really looked at it in terms of, you know, this association with the far right and how Russia does this in Germany and in, um, and in the United States, which is what Professor Ramos has been studying. But there I started to look at it and it was very interesting from my perspective to bring up cases in Russia. And, and again, we're trying to move away from this monolithic view of, of the Russian Federation and look at, so for example, there's a large Muslim population in Russia. It's 12% of the 12% of the population, but not only 12% of the populations, there's cities such as um, Kazan and Tatarstan where you know it, it's dominated by a large mosque that's the downtown core area and it's like okay so how could you possibly have far-right values in this it doesn't mean that there are no nationalists in russia there are actually lots of nationalists but this is not the line that's coming out of the kremlin and so that was that was what we wanted to to explore it's like sort of how does the kremlin sort of mediate all these nationalities and they proudly tell you there are more than 100 nationalities in the russian federation with the messaging they're doing abroad, which is to support a lot of these far right groups. So I thought that was, yeah, that was the main idea. So with the far right abroad, what are a few examples of Russia, of Russian support for the far right abroad? So I'll give you an example from Germany. There's clear evidence of Russia's support for the main far right party, Alternativa for Deutschland, the AFD. It's gotten cozy with AFD representatives in order to achieve the foreign policy goals like easing sanctions regarding Russia's annexation of the Crimea. Um, over the years, Russia has enticed figures like Frauka Petri, who was a leader of the AFD, and another um, man, Alexander Grausland, former deputy of the AFD. And they've encouraged them and even swayed them um, towards pro-Russian views, even sponsoring flights to Moscow, offering them lucrative positions, paying for campaign flyers and signs. Um, and they translate to, this translates to support for Russian policy. So Grauslam, for example, publicly protested the expulsion of Russian spies from Germany. So a third of the AFD voters are Russian Germans, and many of them watch Russian TV channel number one. And like in 2017, Russia TV promoted the ideas for the party to these um, citizens in Germany. They were curating a positive image of the AFD and supporting their message, which was really about a fear of immigrants. Um, that was the main issue at that time and really still is. Um, and these anti-migrant stories were filled with disinformation about the social and economic effects of migrants so they were really getting to the heart of manipulating voters' perceptions and preferences. For example, they began to question, these voters began to question really the ability of the German government to provide security and safety. This party is really all about anti-immigrants for law and order and for a patriarchal society. But, you know, the Russian link between the party and its influence there is really quite clear in our research. That's really fascinating. Dr. Rob, do you have any Yeah, if I could just add, when you, you know, when you hear that story and you, you see, for example, one of the, like the AFD is very, in terms of migration, it's very worried about migration from Muslim countries into, into Germany. And they, they, they feed off of that one. Whereas if you look in, in Russia, one of the things that Putin has done, and again, none of, none of these stories are clear cut or anything like that. It's very complicated. 
and I, I'm not trying to say that Russia is some type of Shangri-La in this one, but Putin will actively visit a mosque and Putin will go to a mosque and they'll have a mosque opening ceremony in Moscow. And of course, the question is, you know, does, is, are there enough mosques to respond to the entire population? Like visiting one mosque isn't visiting, you know, creating a hundred mosques, but he, you know, he goes to a mosque, he's at the opening for a mosque, he's talking with Muslim leadership from other countries and announces that, you know, Islam is an official Russian religion. And it, it's um, quite amazing. And he talks about the, the Muslim presence in Moscow for centuries. And that's that's a contrast with some of the messaging that Professor Ramos just described abroad. Could you give a few examples of Russia clamping down on the far right at home? Yeah, and that's... So one of the criticisms of Putin from, from nationalists in Russia is that he's not nationalist enough. They would like to see from him a much stronger nationalist nationalist drive. I mean, one of the things about Putin, which is, and again, it's always difficult to judge, but he came of age essentially when the Soviet Union was collapsing. And one of the reasons the Soviet Union collapsed was because of ethnic tensions. So he understands fully well that if you're not addressing these ethnic tensions, what's going to happen is you're just going to, your state's going to fall apart, which doesn't benefit him at all. In this sense, he's very much like Vladimir Lenin because Lenin comes to power with mixed messaging. But one of the things is we have to respect the, you know, you know, all the different nationalities that we have in, have in Russia or in the, the former Russian empire. And so what, what Putin has done, he's, and Medvedev did this before him and Putin did this before Medvedev is to actually try to limit the activities of neo-Nazi Russian groups, which is a really strange, strange thing. And to limit their influence and to clamp down on the distribution distribution of materials for these groups. And they've been doing this for actually quite a while. And you have groups such as the Sova Center, which is independent of the Kremlin, because many things nowadays are not independent of the Kremlin. Um, and it actually talks about a lot of success stories. It's imperfect. It's absolutely imperfect. But there are a lot of success stories of limiting the activities of far-right groups or um, disbanding these far-right groups. I would just say, say that the irony there, too, is that they're very supportive of these neo-Nazis or far-right groups from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, within their country. So they offer, you know, a platform when the U.S. far-right parties get kicked off of certain platforms like Facebook. They are readily welcoming to them on their own Facebook equivalents. Yeah, I was going to ask if there was any parallels or relations between those between those two. So based on your research, do you think the United States still has to be worried about the further about further Russian interference? Yes, absolutely. Um, In fact, you know, in March, the National Intelligence uh, Council just came out with a report that then just solidified that, yes, indeed, they were involved in the past U.S. uh, presidential elections. Um, So it's a pretty low cost method for them, right, with high benefits. And it can really do long lasting damage um, on a democracy, especially because it preys on the vulnerabilities of a democracy. So I think Russia has found it pretty successful and I don't see a reason for it to stop. You know, the more instability that it can create, the polarization it can, um, you know, curate within the United States, the more Russia benefits. I agree with that. I think it's, I mean, for Russia, it's a very effective foreign policy strategy. And I think, but what we try to do, and I, I actually think this might be a way for, for you, the United States to think about this a little bit more closely is to understand the gap between, you know, f- promoting these, these far right conferences in the United States 
with the actual what Putin's doing at home, which is which is very, very different. And so it's that I guess for me, that difference to see Russia in this comparative perspective is is really important. So, yeah, I mean, Russia is a great power and Russia has has been you know, that's one of Putin's goals is to, to re, re, resuscitate Russia as a world great power. And this is one of the ways they do it, even though at the same time, when you go, you know, you go to places like Yakutsk in Siberia, which is, you know, it's a 50% ethnic Russian population and a, you know, 40% ethnic Yakut population. Or you go to um, Kazakhstan, uh, sorry, not Kazakhstan, but Tatarstan, Kazan, and it's 50% ethnic Tatar, 50% ethnic Russians, you know, stuff like that. It's like you realize that the same messaging is, is just too problematic. It's not a perfect situation, but that, that messaging in the U.S. is too problematic for the messaging at home. Mm-hmm. Following the 2016 election, when we learned that there was Russian interference with the U.S. election, what were your initial kind of thoughts, feelings about that? And then also leading up to the 2020 election, given your research, how were you feeling kind of, were you preparing yourself for knowledge of Russian interference? Did you think it wouldn't happen? So what were the, the differences between your feelings after finding out about in- interference and then possibly preparing for interference, I would, I would, I would not be surprised at all. And and I think Russian inter- so this is elections, and I'm, I'm you know in terms of the looking at multi ethnic, multi religious Russia, I'm not the elections are a bit of a different issue. But Russia is an adversary of the United States. Russia is not interested, I think, so much in controlling American elections as in upsetting a peaceful balance and stability in the United States. And if it can do it through elections and cause all these major problems and these divisions, it's happy to do this. And so sometimes I think we shouldn't be surprised by this. Why, why wouldn't they do this? It's an opportunity. And, and it's really the responsibility of the United States to find a way to, you know, to, for a path towards greater unity. So these things don't happen because if it's not Russia doing it, you know, I mean, China will do it or some other adversary will do this. Mm-hmm. It's it, it seems almost natural. So it didn't surprise me more. The chaos in the United States was, was what surprised me. Yeah, I would just echo all that. I mean, it's just a new tool mm-hmm. right in the toolbox that we're seeing more and more um, major powers using like Iran and China, who were also named in the report. Well, Iran was um, in the National Intelligence Council report about infer- interference. But I I just think that we're going to see this long into the future. And I also would say it's it's not just that other countries are doing it. You know, the U.S. does some of this as well. So I think we should acknowledge that. If I can just piggyback on that one in the mid 90s, when Yeltsin is is coming up for his for his next election and. I'm going to get the number, the exact number wrong, but his popularity rate is around 10%. It's, it's whatever it is. It's incredibly low. He is in extensive discussions with Clinton in Washington about this election. I mean, the, 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 to say that the United States played no role in that election is just that's you can't say that. And so the United States, and again, that's different in the sense that Yeltsin is calling upon the United States. They're discussing this. This isn't this isn't completely underhanded. But you know, the, the United States has played a role in one of Russia's you know earliest democratic elections, and so that one, you know, if you're a Russian, you 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 know you know that happened, and you mm-hmm. you're aware of this more so than perhaps we are. I think this just it goes to show the power of social media it can have and the mobilizing characteristics it has with. So many things you can think about, like maybe weren't as accessible or likely to happen 
prior to the age of social media. And yeah. it, makes, it makes it easier as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, that's those are the questions I have. So I really appreciate both of you uh, joining me today in today's podcast. So thank you. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. On behalf of the Global Policy Institute, we'd like to thank Dr. Jennifer Ramos and Dr. Nigel Robb. The Loyola Marymount's Global Policy Institute is an interdisciplinary think tank in Los Angeles that applies rigorous academic research to help solve global policy challenges. We thank you for joining us today and encourage you to stay connected with us through our social media channels at LMUGPI.